Um, it's so good to be back with you. Man, we have truly missed you. Um, and we're just so thankful for how you've been blessed us. Uh, just your, your goodness, your thoughts, your prayers, your notes, your meals. Um, it's just been fantastic. Fantastic, for real. Um, Sarah and I are truly blessed to have you guys, you ladies, in our lives. Psalm chapter 8. That's what we're going to be in tonight. Psalm chapter 8. Uh, speaking about the dominion of God by his name. The dominion of God by his name. And here's what we find in this psalm is that God, through the Messiah, or Christ, or an anointed one, has complete and perfect dominion over all, due in part to his name. All right? A name represents how we are acknowledged, right? how we are identified, recognized. In many cultures and times, it, it invokes power and position. Many people take pride in a, in a family name, right? Family names become brand names, which become status in society, right? A name can instill fear or joy, whether a personal or family, a company or, or a nation. A name wields authority over a certain domain. And so I'll repeat myself again. We find that in this psalm, in Psalm chapter 8, that God through the Messiah has complete and perfect dominion over all, due in part to his name. Okay? So here's my two objectives for this evening. One, right out the gate, I want to break down Psalm uh, chapter 8, right? When we read through it, we're going to break down Psalm chapter 8. But then two, we're going to discuss an application about the power of God's name and what that means for us, all right? And what that means for us. So I hope you're there. Psalm chapter 8. We're going to begin in, in just in verse 1 and then read all the way through to verse 9. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. So here's the breakdown. We start in verse 1, right out of the gates, verses 1 and 9, bookend this poetic piece to emphasize and assert the dominion of God by the power of his name. That's what we're focusing on. How God represents himself is proof of his character and person, right? So we call him by how he reveals himself to us. 
This is the importance of the opener that David gives us here. All right. He says, our Lord, O Lord, our Lord. David's teaching us two things, all right? And he's, gonna, and he's building upon this name and the title. Here's the two things I want you to notice. First of all, notice Lord, all capitalized. All capitalized. When you see that in the scriptures, when it's all capitalized, it's referring to the name of God, Jehovah, is what we would say, all right? Jehovah, meaning the self-existent eternal one. It basically represents heaven and the divinity of God, all right? Then secondly, Lord with only a capital L. If you look in there, you see it says Lord with just a capital L. That uh, refers to the lordship as in a king, and it represents God as king here on earth. Then he continues, he says this, he says, his name is Majestic meaning there's a royal weight and greatness to it. And really what the, what the word there wants to tell us is that it's great like waves upon a sea. It's majestic. It encompasses awe and reverence. So while I was studying this, it, it made me recall to memory Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, meaning that his majesty is so big that if you entered the temple, you would have to jump and climb up over the fabric of the train of his robe. That's, that's that cape part that you see in, in movies. You'd have to jump over that. A similar comparison, all right, to build a picture in your mind is that if you ever ran out into the ocean, you ever do that, Anyone? If you ever ran out into the ocean and tried to jump over the, over the waves, ever get that, that feeling you've been there where it like the waves still clip your legs right at your feet or they take you out as you're like jumping over and you look like this weird, awkward jump and run through, right? That's the same thing about the train of the robe. It kind of just takes you over. And what it's telling us is that the, the, the fullness of God's train, you, it can't be ignored. You can't ignore it. You can't escape his presence, And then David finishes that verse and tells us that God is the one that sets by his standard and by his own hand where that glory reaches. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens, meaning above our sky and and space itself. We're outside. You can look up, right? You're not only seeing past our atmosphere right now. You're literally looking into space. And David says God's glory transcends the known universe, everything that we can see. So if we put that knowledge together just out of verse 1, a literal translation of this verse gives us a fuller understanding. So this is what is being said here. You ready? O Jehovah God, the self-existing eternal one, our king, how glorious and great as giant waves upon an awe and vast ocean is your name filling the earth. You have placed by your own hand the height of your glory transcending the expanse of the universe. That's a mouthful. I say that's that's also a weighty and powerful name. 
So let's let's lean into that a bit more. Exodus chapter 3, we read that Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the sons of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And they asked me, What is his name? What should I say to them? God answers Moses, I am who I am. Then he answered, You are to say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, you are to say to the sons of Israel, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever and the name by which I should be remembered from generation to generation. John 14, it says, verily I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask anything in my name and I will do it. The Great Commission, right? Matthew 28 and 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then this one's just for fun. We already read this verse in out of Jude, Jude verse 9. Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn Satan for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you, because there is power in the name. Verse 2, in verse 2, we see that, uh, God's, that David says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against our enemies. In verse 2, God does something that only he would think of. Our great God then takes that position and prestige, everything that we just read about in verse 1 of his name, and he makes it, so the lips of babies and infants are the ones who enjoy its sweetness and its power. It tells us that he stays true to his character, that humility and gentleness is power, that God uses the meek and the vulnerable, not the strong and the powerful. Inarticulate speech like that of a child speaks to his wonder. And I love that because in Romans we read that when we don't know what to say or how to pray, Romans 8 says that his spirit, the, uh, the Holy Spirit speaks on our behalf. The spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Matthew 18, to continue that thread of being uh, weak and, and humble. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despise and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. Verse 
all of our strength, all of our vulnerability needs to be like that of a child in faith so that God is glorified. Through the innocence and childlike faith, he has ordained praise. Some of your translations may uh, say he established strength. And he does so not only to prove his power, but he does it to silence two type of people. And we read about that right there in the verse. He says the two type of people are the foe and the avenger. It's a gut check to both parties. And we typically only speak up against enemies and the foes, right? All those people who are like against us or against God. But here God says that he is also silencing avengers. See, usually the avenger is the one fighting others because of wrongdoing. But God is saying he doesn't need our help. He is the refuge and the stronghold. He can and will avenge. And so we read in Romans, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, we get this compare and contrast in these verses. Really, it's the magnitude and the vastness of creation by God's hand, the, the grandeur of the unknown and the known universe. And it makes no sense that God would take interest and care into looking after and into the things of, of humanity when you look at creation. Like creation is so big. You read about the Milky Way galaxy, you read about black holes and quasi stars and like the sun and like everything in space. And it's just like, wow, that's mind blowing. We're putting rovers on Mars, Lord. But you're mindful of me in this vast universe? It makes no sense except it shows about who God is. It shows himself that to be kind and true, that he is mindful of us because he cares and loves us. Hence the salvation and necessary coming of Jesus to earth. We're going into the Christmas season, right? We speak and we know about the name Emmanuel, God with us. We read John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Then verses 5 and 6 really go into when he's talking about being made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory. It's speaking to the position of humanity. Slightly lesser, lower than heavenly hosts, for we are managers and representatives of God on earth. And we know, and the scriptures tell us that creation now groans due to our fault and the fact that we have failed in the position as stewards of creation. But when we look at Jesus, we are reminded that he also took that, that step down when he became human and took on a hundred percent flesh yet he rose victorious and so now has command and dominion over all redeeming everything to him revelation 5 tells us that he he literally bought the title deed of the universe back 
by the shedding of his blood. So now he is crowned in glory and honor. And so you and I can be crowned with glory and honor. And we're made co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17 tells us. And then in case we don't get what David means about everything and that everything means everything, he leaves us with verses 7 and 8. Flocks and herds and animals of the wild and birds and fish of the sea and everything that swims in the paths of the sea. Everything is under his dominion. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So there's the breakdown of Psalm chapter 8. But let's look at our second objective. The application of the name and the power of God because, yes, Jesus is powerful. Yes, Jesus reigns. Yes, Jesus redeems. But, like, what does that mean for today, right? How are we living that out? It goes back even further in the Old Testament about how God brought forth a people who would don his name. And his name is what represents, as it represents always, redemption. It represents always protection, restrained power, not manipulation or selfish ambition, but a servant-hearted gentleness and a name that exudes mercy, which is what we fully see in the person and power of Jesus that was the present and future hope for them. But now we know he has come. Emmanuel, God with us. The name of Jesus should always bring with it good tidings, joy and hope and anticipation that although all may not be well, healing is available. It's the name of Jesus. Even in moments of friction and disagreement, mercy and kindness go hand in hand. Because mercy and kindness is what's going to frustrate the oppressor, the agitator. Because even in contention, they are being loved. And family, I'm going to tell you right now, that's probably the hardest discipline and the hardest undertaking, right? To love our enemies. To love those that think different and do different than us. But even in the end, Jesus was hated. And he loved Perfectly. So about the name. Looking at an Old Testament verse to pull the primer for our application is Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. This is where we read of the Ten Commandments. Verse 7 of chapter 20 says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Maybe you've heard this commandment as this. It says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. You ever hear it that way? I grew up thinking a lot of times and, and, and being told that that means, oh, you can't say, oh, my God, or use Jesus as a curse word, right? And, and yes, I would agree that that statement and those statements aren't honoring to our Lord, but it's so much more than swearing which is why the translators helped us set this straight 
And they said, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And so in ancient times, when they read this, right, in ancient times, misusing the name of the Lord could have meant failing to fulfill a sworn oath or making an oath with the intention of deceiving someone. So basically, those that would have swore an oath in the Lord's name called on God to bring punishment on themselves if they didn't keep their promises. James and, 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 uh, would tell us, right, let your yes be yes. Matthew chapter 5, we went through that, right? Let your yes be yes. You don't have to swear on earth, which is God's footstool. You don't have to swear on heaven, which is where God sits. You can't swear by the hair on your head because you don't own yourself. Let your yes be yes. But if you make an oath before God, you better keep it because you're using God's name to sign off on it. Any person attached to the name of the Lord that did or said something contrary to how the Lord would act or speak would result in punishment or sometimes death. And we, you read some of this in Jeremiah 5. You read some of this in Psalms 50. Misusing the Lord's name misrepresents his character, God's purpose and actions. It's, it's basically lying on God and his name. And so when I pull that into the New Testament, into the today context, right, in 2021, any of us as Christians, Christians meaning little representations of Christ, who live contrary, speak contrary, or teach contrary, even with good intentions to what Jesus has told us, breaks this commandment of misusing the Lord's name. See, to be a Christian and not live out basic principles of the faith, like the Great Commission or serving others, breaks this commandment and really many of the other commandments, right? When we don't do justice or love mercy and live humbly, we misrepresent and disrespect the name of God. Lately, with all the current talks, the narratives, the political speak, I ask myself, when people hear Christians are coming to help, do they cringe or do they rejoice? When people hear that you and I are coming to help, do they understand that hope is coming, embodied in us? Do people know Jesus is near because of how we represent him as we interact with others? Do people take note that you and I have been with Jesus when we are in their presence because we have been with Jesus? That's what I ask myself. When I read about the majesty and the power of God's name and that I call myself a Christian, meaning I have the authority as an ambassador to sign off on the name of Jesus, and that when I pray in Jesus' name, something should happen, I'm wondering if I'm really following step in step with how Jesus walked. If I'm touching lives, how Jesus touched lives. If I'm speaking how Jesus spoke in mercy and in kindness. 
Or am I abusing and misusing and misrepresenting the name of God? Because we read in Psalm 8 that God's name is majestic in all the earth and glorious above all that we can see and understand and fathom. And so here's the application of that. And truly, I think it's an application that that just reflects in prayer. And so if you're taking notes, I, I hope you're taking notes or doing something. Here's the reflection for me and that I'm presenting to you. This is the prayer. Jesus, what is it that I must release so that I can hold on to you better and represent your name by my presence where I live, work, and play? That's, that's a question I want to ask myself today, this evening. When I wake up, when I go throughout the day, when I, when I go into Sunday or the rest of the week, Lord, what must I relinquish? What ideologies must I let go? What worldview needs to just crumble because it's an idol in my life so that when I walk out in your name, it is a name that is glorifying and honoring you. Like Jesus honored and glorified the name of the Father. So we'll close with this prayer as the worship team comes up. My prayer is this, family. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And we get to represent that name to the nations. And we get to represent and be that name to our neighbors. So Lord Jesus, lead us in that way of life to represent your name in all excellence. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus.